Okay, real talk. When did paying someone back become social media? What do you mean? Like, say I want to see what you're doing and who you're hanging with, and you're not posting about it on your story. I can just stalk your pay app and find out what you're doing. Oh, yeah, that's weird. You do that? No, I don't do that. I use Apple Cash. It's built into your iPhone, easy and secure. You can send and receive money right in messages and keep it between friends, and then use that money to buy something at a store with Apple Pay. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? Maybe. Shh. Services are provided by Green Dot Bank, member FDIC. Terms apply. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. This season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. Welcome to Criminalia, a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. Thomas Jefferson once noted that, quote, a little rebellion now and then was a good thing. Is it? Welcome to Criminalia. I'm Maria Tremarchi. And I'm Holly Fry. Kind of funny that Jefferson said that considering last week's episode. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> Once, the state of Rhode Island had two governors at one time. True story. Thomas Wilson Dorr was elected governor under a new state constitution. The problem with that, though, was that Rhode Island already had a governor. That was a man named Samuel Ward King. And the state legislature refused to recognize the legitimacy of the new constitution or of Governor Dorr. Tom Dorr was born on November 5th. 1805, the scion of an incredibly wealthy family in Providence, Rhode Island. His father, Sullivan Dorr, amassed the family's fortune through trade between the Qing Dynasty and the United States during what's known as the Old China Trade. Dorr's mother, Lydia Allen, was the sister of the prominent textile manufacturer Zachariah Allen. Tom's father and uncle co-owned the Burnin Mill Village, which was used for textile production in Woonsocket, about 15 miles outside of Providence. Dorr was very well-educated. He attended Phillips Exeter Academy in New Hampshire and graduated from Harvard University in the class of 1823. He studied law for two years in New York City under Chancellor James Kent. You might not recognize that name, but he was the author of one of the leading American legal texts of the first half of the 19th century. Dorr was admitted to the Rhode Island Bar in 1827 and opened a law practice on College Street in Providence. Over the next six years, give or take, though, he mostly toured the country, and he occasionally practiced maritime and commercial law in New York City before returning to Providence in 1833. He was often referred to as a, quote, lackluster lawyer. In the 1830s, Dorr threw himself behind a number of reform causes, including public education, freedom of speech, banking, anti-slavery, suffrage extension, imprisonment for debt, and prison reform. He began his career as part of the Whig Party, but he didn't remain a Whig. Disagreements over banking reform and suffrage extension led to his expulsion from that party. He briefly headed the equal rights wing of the state's Democratic Party, but just briefly. 
He began his political career as a representative in the Rhode Island General Assembly in 1834 at the age of 29. In his role, he drafted and secured a statute providing for regulation of state chartered banks, and he also set up a permanent school fund and laid the groundwork for the state's first public high school. The trouble began with an argument over Rhode Island's constitution. Because you see, Rhode Island didn't actually have one. Before and into the 1840s, the government document of Rhode Island was its original colonial charter that dated all the way back to 1663. In fact, for nearly 200 years, from 1663 to 1843, the citizens of Rhode Island were governed under a royal charter granted by King Charles II of England. They were a political anomaly in this regard because most states drafted and adopted new state constitutions during and after the American Revolutionary War, but not Rhode Island. So let's get a little bit more specific on this. Under the colonial charter, it was outlined that only men who owned real estate valued at $134, or, of course, more than that, could vote. So specifically, quote, gentlemen of property and standing had voting rights in the state. In 1822, the state legislature restricted that right to vote to white men only, disenfranchising free males of color across the state, all of whom had just previously been as eligible as the white male citizens to vote. At the time of the American Revolution, 80% of the adult white male citizens of Rhode Island were enfranchised. Voting rights hadn't really been a big issue when the state was sparsely populated farmland, but by the 1840s, things were becoming increasingly industrial and crowded. By the early 19th century, immigration had increased the state's population, and many of the newcomers rented their homes. Rhode Island had failed to reconcile that increase in immigration with political democracy, though. In spite of the substantial changes to the state's population, the General Assembly refused to reabortion its seats. They had been reluctant to expand suffrage requirements, mainly in light of that growing immigrant population. Adult white males who rented rather than owned property, according to the charter, had no voting rights. Black people, indigenous peoples, really any person of color and all women regardless of race were not allowed to vote, whether they happened to be qualified by the rules applied to white male voters or not. By 1840, the population of Rhode Island had grown to a little more than 100,000 people. Many people lived in urban areas, specifically in Providence. With these changes, the proportion of adult white men who met state qualifications to vote decreased from 80% to 40%. In 1841, Rhode Island became the only state that did not allow all adult white males to vote, regardless of property status. Doar's attempt to enfranchise all male citizens of Rhode Island, and that included men of color, turned into what we now know as the Door Rebellion. We're going to take a quick break forward from our sponsor, but when we're back, we'll set the scene for how Rhode Island found itself in a small civil war. Hey, everybody, it's Holly. Listen, I've been doing stuff on stage since I was a kid, which means that I have been doing my makeup since I was a kid. And I can turn out a look when I need to, but on my day-to-day, I really like to keep it a little more relaxed and low-key. I don't have time for a full face most of the time. But 
That also means that Thrive Cosmetics can have me covered no matter what I'm doing, whether I'm doing something on stage, like I have an appearance or a live show, or I'm just running to the grocery store. Something in their line is perfect. And what I really love and what's important to me is that they are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free. And to me, cruelty-free is very important in the cosmetics I use. I mentioned that I've been doing my makeup for a long time. I've gotten older in that time. And one of the things that I've done to refresh my look is switch over to their brilliant eye brighteners and use something like a rose gold shade to really like go all around my eye and then just blend it out and get a daytime smoky look. It makes me look a little more youthful and more refreshed. And it's just easy as pie. And it means that I don't have to mess with a whole ton of products. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash criminalia. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash criminalia for 10% off your first order. Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. Welcome back to Criminalia. Let's talk about how Rhode Island found itself with two elected governors. The Door Rebellion, or as it's also known, Rhode Island's own very small civil war, had what you might expect from a tiny civil war. There were cannons, impassioned speeches, there were rival governments, and at one point, those who supported the new party took up arms against the colonial charter-defined government. The very short-lived rebellion to overthrow Governor King and the General Assembly was ultimately unsuccessful. Here's what went down. So a new reform party, the People's Party, called a constitutional convention, adopted a new constitution, held elections, and then, on May 3, 1842, installed Thomas Dorr as the new governor of the state of Rhode Island. Ta-da! The end! Yeah, not so fast. Oh, man, not so fast at all. So the formation of the Rhode Island Suffrage Association in the spring of 1840 led to growing interest in this suffrage movement. And around the same time, reformers in the state sought to forcibly seek to free Rhode Island from the antiquated Royal Charter of 1663. Spearheaded by Tom Dorr, Dorrites, as those who supported him were nicknamed, formed a new political party, a new state constitution, and new leadership. The People's Party, as they became known, wanted to redistribute wealth in the state, which was, and had long been, run by a small, wealthy group of white men. The People's Constitution called for an independent judicial system and universal manhood suffrage. In October of 1841, supporters held what they called the People's Convention. They drafted the People's Constitution, that granted voting rights to all white males aged 21 or older who had lived in Rhode Island for at least one year. Reformist and abolitionist in sympathies, Dorr supported the idea of manhood suffrage in the Jacksonian definition, which argued for universal manhood suffrage, or voting rights for all white male adults. Where he differed, though, was that he argued for voting rights for black men 
as well. Dorr eventually gave up that fight for Black suffrage in order to win the support of immigrants, many of whom were Irish and white, which his party would accept. His party's constitution, though, ended up demanding voting rights for only, quote, all white adult male citizens. The change was made over Dorr's strong objections. They adopted their constitution and they put it to a vote. And that document was overwhelmingly approved in a referendum that was held in defiance of the standing state government. 14,000 people voted for it and fewer than 100 against it. Even the majority of those who were already entitled to vote backed the move. All of this, though, all of this was unofficial and illegal. The old charter government hadn't given any kind of consent for a referendum and refused to recognize its legitimacy. So you can begin to see the problem here. By springtime on April 18, 1842, Dorr was elected to the office of governor under the People's Constitution. I know, you're like, what? Yes. In April of 1842, two elections were held. One with the intention of electing a government under the People's Constitution, and the other to elect a government under the legal charter. Samuel Ward King was elected governor by charterites, those who believed the state should keep its colonial charter. The People's Party installed Thomas Wilson Dorr as their governor on May 3rd, 1842. And Rhode Island suddenly found itself with two elected governors. In early May, both governors, as well as state legislatures and other officials, were all sworn into office, and in that moment, there were two complete governments in the state. Printed in the Charleston Mercury, quote, In the small state of Rhode Island, with the population of about 100,000, there are at this moment two governors, two senates, two houses of representatives, and other things in proportion. A clear exemplification of Jefferson's maxim that the world is governed too much. Reformers remarked former President John Quincy Adams, have taken steps to achieve a revolution in government because the state still adheres to the royal charter. In April of 1842, just before the elections, the state's General Assembly passed the Algerian Law, which basically rendered elections held by the People's Party as completely illegal, and set punishments for anyone meeting or running for office under the People's Constitution. Many of Dorr's supporters were fined, some were imprisoned, some were tried. The charter government passed a statute declaring results of any People's Party election to also be illegal. It also made it an act of treason against the state of Rhode Island and punishable by life imprisonment for anyone to assume state office under the People's Constitution. It became pretty clear that neither side would compromise, and the situation escalated. Dorr's election by the People's Party was outright rejected by the pre-existing state government. Both Dorr and King claimed to be the legitimate governor of the state, and both appealed to President John Tyler for intervention. No help came, not really. The president was reluctant to get involved in this situation, but he did send troop reinforcements to Fort Adams in Newport, Rhode Island, just as a precautionary measure. Dorr himself had zero military experience. But he decided to organize between 200 to 300 Dorites and began his campaign by stealing two light cannons from a small local militia post. 
On May 17, 1842, Doors men surrounded the state arsenal on Cranston Street in Providence with the intention of taking the arms stored within. His father, Sullivan Dorr, and uncle, Crawford Allen, are said to have been among those defending the armory. That's right, against Tom. Dorr's family aligned themselves with Samuel Ward King and the Charterites. His parents pled for him not to run for governor under the People's Constitution. His father wrote him, quote, It grieves us to the heart to know that a son of ours arrived at so mature an age and so well-versed in the laws of his country should be a participant in acts calculated to carry the state into destruction. We pray you to pause before you pass the Rubicon. They couldn't change his mind, and ultimately he became estranged from his family. When its defenders would not surrender the armory to him, Dorr ordered his cannons fired, and they were fired, but no balls were fired. Not on the first try, not on the second try. The theory here is that perhaps the equipment was just too old. This was equipment from the Revolutionary War, so roughly 70 years earlier. But that was the end of the armory raid, though. There was nothing left to do at that moment but retreat, so the plan wasn't super great. Well, he didn't have any military experience. <laughs> Governor King declared martial law and issued a warrant for Dorr's arrest. Dorr fled to Connecticut, where the Democratic governor refused to extradite him to Rhode Island. Nearly 200 of Dorr's followers were captured and brought to Providence, where they were jailed, some for several weeks before being released. This entire thing resulted in one death, that of an innocent civilian who was shot by mistake. The New York Herald humorously reported on the event, though, printing, quote, Killed? Zero. Wounded? Zero. Missing? 481. Scared? 960. Horribly frightened? 789. Fainted on the battleground? 73. Women in hysterics? 22. Temperance pledge broke before the battle? 330. Governors missing? One. So we're going to take a break here for a word from our sponsor. And when we return, we will talk about when Dor returned from exile and when he turned himself in. Welcome back to Criminalia. Dor became the first person convicted of treason against one of the states. So let's talk about that trial. After a month in exile, Dorr returned to Rhode Island in order to reconvene the People's Party on Independence Day at Chapachet, a small village near the town of Gloucester. William Gibbs McNeil, a West Point graduate who commanded the Charter Militia of roughly 3,000 militiamen, was dispatched to protect the state's interests. Dorr hadn't realized, though, how the militia of the People's Party had just disintegrated after the failed attack on the arsenal and only a few hundred of his own supporters and militia met him there. In total, this rebellion lasted just about two months. You'll see six weeks sometimes. And aside from the debacle at the armory, not a single battle was fought. Actually, it's reported that the charter forces were somewhat disappointed they couldn't find their enemy to fight. Regardless of that, though, they still stormed Dorr's army's abandoned encampment at Chapachet. A few weeks later, Dorr wrote a lengthy letter to his friend William Simons, editor of the Providence newspaper The Republican Herald. And that letter said, quote, 
It is due to myself to say that although I am not insensible to the opinions of men, I feel conscious that I have done the duty which was assigned to me by the people of Rhode Island, and in this a source of satisfaction of what no hostility or malice can deprive me. My spirit is not broken by the burden of defeat and obloquy that has been cast upon me. Through all of this, the charter government kind of got the message. A document was drafted in an attempt to answer the people's constitution. After a few drafts in November that year, it was debated upon by the state legislature and passed by the electorate after suffrage language was modified to remove the property requirement for natural-born citizens. Though it wasn't nearly as reformist as the people's constitution, the new state constitution did greatly increase male suffrage in Rhode Island, and it finally put an end to the racial requirement. It did, however, retain the property qualification for immigrants, which left a good number of Doors Irish supporters just as disenfranchised as they had been before the rebellion. The new constitution went into effect in 1843, but the landholding requirement wasn't entirely dropped from the document until 1888. Facing arrest by the state, Dorr fled, with a bounty of $5,000 on his head. Under the protection of Governor Henry Hubbard, Dorr remained in exile in New Hampshire from July of 1842 until October of 1843. On August 25, 1842, he was indicted in absentia in state court for treason against Rhode Island. He returned to Rhode Island on October 21, 1843, and turned himself in to authorities in Providence. Dorr was charged with treason. He remained in the Providence, Rhode Island City Jail for five months before he was arraigned on March 5, 1844. He pleaded not guilty, and his trial was set for April 26. With his bail denied, Dorr remained in jail until his trial. The trial was held before the judges of Rhode Island Supreme Court at the courthouse in Newport, which is actually about 40 miles from Providence. Newport was known for its pro-charter government sympathies, making it a place where the prosecution believed they would have an easy time finding a jury that was sure to convict him. Joseph W. Blake and Alfred Bosworth were the chief prosecutors. Dorr, a lawyer, represented himself and was assisted by three attorneys, Samuel Y. Atwell, George Turner, and Walter S. Burgess. Dorr never denied his actions. His argument primarily relied on two lines of defense. His first argument was that because the United States Constitution defined treason as a crime committed against the country of the United States and not against any individual state, he could not be charged with treason against Rhode Island. His second argument was about his legitimacy as governor, specifically that during the events of 1842, he was the legitimate governor of the state, and therefore the Algerine law was invalid. The court rejected both of those arguments. According to the judges, Job Durfree, Levi Hale, William R. Staples, and George A. Brayton, quote, wherever allegiance is due, there, treason may be committed. Allegiance is due to a state, and therefore, treason may be committed against a state of this union. Additionally, the judges argued that only the state legislature that had been elected in 1843, and not any judge or jury or Thomas Dorr, had the power to decide which government or constitution was legitimate in 1842. The jury retired on May 6th and returned a verdict of guilty just three hours later. 
Dorr became the first person convicted of treason against one of the states. On June 20th, he was sentenced. For his actions against the state of Rhode Island, he was imprisoned, quote, for the term of his natural life and there kept at hard labor in separate confinement. Motions were made for a new trial, but they were denied by the court. Dorr was taken to the state prison in Providence two days after his sentencing, where the sentence of solitary confinement was strictly enforced. His request for permission to take daily walks inside the prison and to have books available were both refused. He was not allowed to speak or write to anyone outside of the prison, with the exception of his lawyer. His parents were not allowed to see or talk to him. The prison was damp and poorly ventilated, and Dorr's health deteriorated while he was incarcerated. Yet, he hadn't lost his fight. When the state legislature offered him amnesty on the provision he swore allegiance to the 1843 state constitution, he refused. Dorr spent his time working on his appeal to the United States Supreme Court, but his situation changed before his case reached the high court's docket. Dorr did not serve out his life sentence. He was still popular among many Rhode Islanders, and many continued to champion his cause, calling him the people's governor and making his freedom a cause célèbre. His imprisonment became a key issue in the gubernatorial election of 1845. After 20 months under Governor Charles Jackson's administration, Dorr was unconditionally released from prison. It's important to note, though, that this was not a pardon. Dorr's civil and political rights were not restored until his uncle, Philip Allen, became the state's governor in 1851. In 1854, a decade after his release, Dorr's treason conviction was reversed shortly before his death on December 27th that year. He never wavered. He maintained that his new government was legal, and he always maintained he had legitimately won that election of 1842. The Dorr Rebellion was the climax of years and years of debate in the state over the question of suffrage rights. Historians have described the rebellion in different ways. The Dorrites have been called irresponsible idealists who ignored the state's need for stability and order. But they've also been hailed as being part of an early working-class attempt to overthrow an elitist government. Some historians call it a legitimate expression of republicanism in the United States, although politics actually changed very little for Rhode Islanders after 1842, because at the end of the day, that same elite group of men held the power. The remaining state population, a.k.a. the women, meanwhile, would have to wait until 1920 for full voting rights, with the addition of the 19th Amendment to the United States Constitution. Tom Dorr is buried in Providence, Rhode Island. On his headstone at Swan Point Cemetery is a small plaque bearing the state seal, with People's Constitution inscribed below. Above, it names the grave to be that of Governor Thomas Wilson Dorr. And that is our story of the Dorrites. Would you like to have a little perfidy pour with me? Oh, after this, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to think about something interesting that would feature a sense of two things competing and canceling each other out <laughs> in the way that there were two governors going on here. 
And so this drink has two flavors that tend to be strong, but it they do balance in a very weird way when you drink it. You will remember that a while back I did a cocktail where we tried to reclaim the Negroni and make it something delicious and palatable to me. I absolutely remember that, yes. And in the interim, I have continued to play with Campari a little bit and see how I can use it in ways that I like because I am not the biggest fan of a biting bitter thing. So I thought, is there a way I can balance out Campari and make it not feel quite so harsh, but still have that unique flavor where you get a little bit of the bitters flavor, but it doesn't feel as bitey in your mouth. So this is a drink that I'm calling Double Trouble just to represent two governors. It actually has three ingredients. It's super easy. So there are two flavors that tend to be strong, but they balance each other out because there's also a a modifier in there. So you start with one ounce of Campari, Mm -hmm. three quarters of an ounce of vodka, just a basic clean vodka. You don't want any flavor in there. And then you'll shake that and pour it over ice and you top it with ginger ale or ginger beer, depending on how you want it to flavor. Add bitters if you want. I added a floral bitter Mm -hmm. and it was nice, but you don't need it. But what's interesting is that the ginger neutralizes the Campari in a way that I didn't anticipate. It's like the ginger and the vodka together, you still taste that bitter orange flavor, but it doesn't create that weird pucker that Campari can take can create in your mouth where you're like, mm, yeah. I drink Campari. Um, and it actually becomes really quite a sippable drink that has the flavor profiles without any of the unpleasant parts of them which was very fascinating to me. It doesn't work with just Campari and ginger. The vodka has to be in there. Otherwise, it doesn't quite balance, right? It's like the vodka is like its own bite neutralizes the bite of Campari, and then the ginger does a whole other thing to it. This is one that is a little bit trickier to do a mocktail of. I would suggest either using like the juice of a blood orange in lieu of Campari that has that sort of little bit more bitter and a little bit more like growl to it and just squeezing that and you want to strain it if you get pulp in your thing or not. It's up to you, whatever you like. There's no cocktail jail. I haven't said that in a long time, but there isn't. (laughs) The whole point is that this is a guide and from here you make things the way you like them. So I would do, yeah, like an ounce of blood orange juice against... Uh, a few ounces of ginger ale or ginger beer. And then I would, if you are not averse to using bitters at all, we always talk about on the show, some people like them and some don't. Angostura does make a bitter, an orange bitters. Mm -hmm. And I would throw a dash or two of that in there and you're going to get real close at that point. I will tell you, I didn't have a blood orange on hand when I was doing this, so I haven't tested this. So hopefully it works. It sounds like it's going to be a great substitute. I think so. There's a reason I don't have blood orange on hand, and it's because I don't like anything bitey. Because (laughs) I want a gentle hug in every sip. (laughs) I'm the opposite here, and I love all of these things. But what's funny to me is that I, I don't really know that many people who are fans of the blood orange. Even though you want to be like everything that's made with it looks like something too. I love them. Well, and I occasionally will use them in cooking. Yes. But I don't tend to just have them on hand. Yeah. And I my grocery store did not have them this morning when I ran over to try to test this. So that is why I have not tested this idea. Still, I think it's I think it's the right way to go. So that is the double trouble. And I will say, like I said, I don't tend to love Campari. I it's one of those things. There are lots of great cocktails made with it that people adore and they just don't work on my palate. This was super sippable and easy. 
Normally, when I'm workshopping a cocktail like this, which tends to be in the morning, mm-hmm. which is not... <laughs> Listen, I enjoy a day drink, but I usually just have a couple of sips and then I'm done because I'm working and we're about to go in the studio right, and I don't right. want to be stumbling when I'm trying to chat. But, What's wrong um, with you all? <laughs> but this was one where I found myself, I was like typing a note to you and I went, oh my gosh, I have continued to drink this cocktail. And I wasn't like intoxicated, but I was like, I'm surprised that I, without even thinking about it, continued to sip on a Campari-based cocktail. That's something right there. I'm finding ways to cozy up with Campari. That's, as I always say, I'm always trying to find ways to find things that I think I don't like and make them what I do like. That's the whole point of playing with all of these things. Explore. You may not know what your favorite drink is because you haven't made it yet. You haven't had it. Or just enjoy Taste the Rainbow, as they say. (laughs) (laughs) That too. (laughs) We are so grateful that you have hung out with us and listened to this story of treason and fascinating political machinations. And we will be right back here again next week with more of the season of treason and another cocktail. So we hope to see you here. Criminalia is a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from Shondaland Audio, please visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. This season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd.